I've done a few episodes on India, three on Buddhism, episodes 54, 55, and 56. Also, and more related to this episode, three on how India came into being in its current borders, way back in episodes 11, 12, and 13. So if you have some spare time, go back and check them out. Now back to this episode. The miracle of India, to me, is that it's a political reality, even after 75 years. What I'm trying to say is that given the opportunities laid out for it on a platter since 1947 to literally not survive, it has actually survived against all the odds. And importantly, no civil war has occurred in the classic sense where a country splinters and the military divides up and then goes and fights one another. It didn't happen for India. India, despite many negative news stories, is one amazing place. But it does have problems. And in this episode, I want to talk about problems. This episode, you see, I'm going to spend a chunk of the time talking about two things that have plagued India since 1972. And I'm picking 1972 primarily because the earlier episodes kind of left off at 1972, so I'm not really going to focus on anything before 1972. First off, though, let's set the stage a little bit, right? India, to help you understand, is 1.4 odd billion people as of the middle of 2022. Oh, and that's just the counted people by census. I'm sure that a bunch of people got away without a count. Think about this. Just in the state of Bihar, it has 100 million people. Uttar Pradesh next door has 240 million people. Do the mathematics. Just two states account for 340 million people. That is bigger than the population of most countries. The combined population of just these two states is the same as the entire population of the whole country of the United States. We are not just talking about masses of people. We are also talking about, like many other countries, a melting pot of rival and complementary cultures, languages, histories, religions, just about everything. Does a Bihari have all that much in common with a Tamil? Not really, but geography and a bunch of common threads end up connecting them. And in the end, the political entity of India connects the Bihari to the Tamil. In Bihar, up in the north, the language is Hindi, but often local languages such as Bhojpuri are commonly spoken. In the south, Tamil Nadu, Tamil is spoken. The two languages are as different as night and day. Bhojpuri derives from Sanskrit, while Tamil is essentially, and we think this is true, Tamil is essentially the world's oldest surviving language. It is completely independent of Sanskrit. When you drive, say, from Rajasthan to Gujarat, the language changes, the food changes, the culture changes, the history changes. It is like driving from Germany to France. Take some people in the north. The Punjabis, for instance, are so different from, say, the people of Ladakh, who are closer to Tibetan Buddhists. That right there is chalk and cheese. The state of, say, Sikkim up in the Himalayas and Goa on the Malabar coast are like two different countries. It's like Finland and Morocco. All to say 
that there is an incredible amount of diversity. There is also an incredible amount of division. Because diversity and division go hand in hand. It's, after all, human nature. All the diversity I mentioned also creates the division. Some big divisions, some small divisions, but divisions nonetheless. Five other underlying divisions that plague the country are number one, God or gods or any religion, two, regional nationalism, three, caste, four, female inequality, and five, my favorite, corruption. Not to say that none of these factors are not found in other countries. They absolutely are, and many other countries are way worse. And yes, you in Europe or wherever you are have issues with gender inequality, corruption, religion, and all of that stuff too. And if it's not caste, then it's certainly class that you have a problem with. So this isn't about me bashing one group against another. It's about identifying issues in a society, understanding the local population has the agency in of themselves to fix their own issues. So, I want to cover two really big problems for India. One is the what is known as the emergency, and two, and this also, they're both big topics, is separatism. Now, there are other topics, and I will touch on those after them, after these two, but these are the two that I really want to focus on. And let's start with what is known as the emergency. This emergency was a 21-month period that lasted from 1975 to 1977, when then-Prime Minister Indra Gandhi had a state of emergency declared across the country. Just so you know, the president in the Indian government system is just a figurehead. So President Ahmed had little power just like the president of India today in 2022 has little power. It was the prime minister who was driving this. And while Ahmed was rubber stamping it for her, she was the one driving it. So to me, this, this event, the emergency, it was India's only dance with authoritarian dictatorship. Now, for much of the emergency, most of Indira Gandhi's political opponents were imprisoned and the press was censored. Even the fairly independent and fair Indian judiciary was under heavy government control. Several human rights violations were reported from time to time, including a mass forced sterilization campaign spearheaded by Sanjay Gandhi, the Prime Minister's son. More on that a bit later. There was a saying, Indra is India, India is Indra. That was going to be put to big, huge test. Indra Gandhi succeeded to the leadership of the Congress Party in 1966 on the death of Prime Minister, then Prime Minister, Lal Bahadur Shastri. Her ascendancy and her being the daughter of Jawaharlal Nehru, India's, India's first Prime Minister, resulted in a massive electoral majority. Drunk with power and fresh off the 1972 Shimla Accords, Gandhi, in my view, who made always have had authoritarian tendencies, made decisions excluding the cabinet and concentrated power in the prime minister's office, also known as the PMO. Oh, something else to note. 
In the 1971 general elections, the people rallied behind Indra's very populist slogan of Garibi Hatal, i.e. abolish poverty. Even in the late 1960s, the government shifted left and nationalized many industries, including banks and airlines. In March to April 1974, a student agitation by the Bihar Chetral Samiti received the support of Gandhian socialist Jay Prakash Narayan, referred to as JP. And this was against the Bihar government. In April 1974, in Patna, JP called for total revolution, asking students, peasants, and labor unions to non-violently transform Indian society. He also demanded the dissolution of the state government. But this was not accepted by the center. A month later, the Railway Employees Union, the largest union in the country, went on a nationwide railway strike. This strike was led by the firebrand trade union leader, George Fernandez, who was the president of the All India Railwaymen Federation. He was also the president of the Socialist Party. The strike was brutally suppressed by the Indra Gandhi government, which arrested thousands of employees and drove their families out of their quarters. To understand the emergency, we have to talk a little bit about what actually happened, a little bit of history here. So a chap called Raj Narayan, who had been defeated in the 1971 parliamentary elections by Indra Gandhi, lodged cases of election fraud and use of state machinery for election purposes against her in the Allahabad High Court. Shanti Bhushan fought the case for Narayan. Indra Gandhi was also cross-examined in the High Court, which was the first such instance for an Indian Prime Minister, i.e. Indra Gandhi had to be present herself for five hours in front of a judge. In the same year, 1971, dubious anti-protest laws were passed where anyone protesting could be arrested. On the 12th of June, 1975, Justice Jagmohan Lal Sinha of the Allahabad High Court found the Prime Minister guilty on the charge of misuse of government machinery for her election campaign. The court declared her election null and void and unseated her from her seat in the Lok Sabha. The court also banned her from contesting any election for an additional six years. Indra Gandhi then challenged the High Court's decision in the Supreme Court. Justice V. R. Krishna Iyer on the 24th of June 1975 upheld the High Court judgment and ordered all privileges Gandhi received as an MP to be stopped and that she be debarred from voting. However, she was allowed to continue as Prime Minister pending the resolution of her appeal. J.P. and Moraji Desai called for daily anti-government protests. The next day, J.P., a.k.a. J.P. Narayan, organized a large rally at Delhi where he said that a police officer must reject the orders of the government if the order is immoral, as this was in line with Mahatma Gandhi's teachings. Such statements were taken as a sign of inciting rebellion in the country. Later the same day, we're still on the 24th of June, 1975, Indra Gandhi requested a compliant President Ali Ahmad to proclaim a state of emergency. Within three hours, the electricity to all major newspapers were cut and the political opposition arrested. The proposal was sent without discussion with the union cabinet, who only learned of it and ratified it the next morning. The government cited threats to national security as a war with Pakistan had recently been concluded. 
Due to that war and additional challenges of drought and the 1973 oil crisis, the economy was in poor condition. The government claimed that the strikes and protests had basically paralyzed the government and hurt the economy of the country greatly. In the face of such massive political opposition, desertion and disorder, right across the country in the party, Gandhi stuck to the advice of a few loyalists and a younger son, Sanjay Gandhi, whose own power had grown considerably over the last few years to become an extra constitutional authority within the government. Siddharth Shankar Ray, the Chief Minister of West Bengal, proposed to the Prime Minister to impose an internal emergency. He drafted a letter for the President to issue the proclamation based on information that Indra had received that there is an imminent threat to the security of India being threatened by internal disturbances. He showed how democratic freedom could be suspended while remaining within the ambit of the Constitution. After a quick question regarding the procedural matter, President Ahmed declared a state of internal emergency upon the Prime Minister's advice on the same night, 25th of June, 1975, just a few minutes before the clock struck midnight. As per the Constitution, Mrs. Gandhi advised President Ahmed and he approved the continuation of the emergency every six months until she finally decided to hold elections in 1977. In 1976, Parliament voted to delay elections, something it could only do within the constitution that was suspended by the emergency itself. Indra then came up with a 20-point economic program to increase agricultural and industrial production, improve public services and fight poverty, also illiteracy, through, and I echoed, the discipline of the graveyard. In addition to the official 20 points, Sanjay Gandhi, the son, declared his five-point program promoting literacy, family planning, tree planting, the eradication of casteism, and the abolition of dowry. Later, during the emergency, the two projects merged into a 25-point program. Now, none of these things are actually bad in any way. Casteism is horrible. Eradication of that is great. Abolition of dowry wonderful. Promoting literacy, great. Industrialization, awesome. Well, here's the thing. Things are great with ideas. It's implementation, execution of those ideas that are always the problem. You see, Indra invoked Article 352 and 356 of the Constitution and granted herself extraordinary powers and launched a massive crackdown on civil rights and political opposition. The government used police forces from across the country to place thousands of protesters and star strike leaders such as Vijay Rajya Sindhya, Jayaprakash Narayan, Raj Narayan, Muraji Desai, Chenan Singh, Atul Bihari Vajpayee, Lal Krishna Advani, Arun Jaitley, Jay Krishna Gupta, etc., 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 even Gayatri Devi, the Dowager Queen of Jaipur into jail. They were, they were arrested in advance in anticipation of protests. To put the icing on the cake as it was, even opposition organizations and political parties were banned. That included the RSS, the Jamaat-e-Islami, and the CPIM, which is the Communist Party of India Marxist. Even Congress party leaders who 
opposed the emergency, such as Chandrasekhar, and resigned their government post, were threatened with arrest and placed into detention. Elections for parliament and state governments were postponed. Indra and her parliamentary majorities could rewrite the nation's laws since her Congress party had the required mandate to do so, a two-thirds majority in parliament. And when she felt that the existing laws were too slow, she got the president to issue ordinances, a law-making power in times of urgency, invoking sparingly, completely bypassing parliament. That allowed her to rule basically by decree, almost like a president in another country. Also, she had little trouble amending the constitution that exonerated her from any culpability in her election fraud case, imposing president's rule in states like Gujarat and Tamil Nadu, where anti-Indra parties ruled. And she jailed thousands of opponents. In September 1976, Sanjay Gandhi, the son, initiated a widespread compulsory sterilization program to limit population growth. The exact extent of Sanjay's role in the implementation of the program is somewhat disputed, with some writers holding Gandhi directly responsible for his authoritarianism, while others blaming officials who were actually implementing the program rather than Sanjay Gandhi himself. It is even suggested that international pressure from places like the United States, United Nations, and World Bank played a role in implementation of these population control measures. Rukshana Sultana was a socialite known for being one of Sanjay Gandhi's close associates, and she gained a lot of notoriety in leading Sanjay Gandhi's sterilization campaign in Muslim areas of Old Delhi. The campaign primarily involved getting males to undergo vasectomy. Quotas were set up that enthusiastic supporters and government officials worked hard to achieve. There were allegations of coercion and unwilling candidates as well. In 1976-1977, the program led to 8.3 million sterilizations, most of them forced, up from 2.7 million the previous year. As the Congress Party and the Gandhis danced with authoritarianism, the opposition jailed or otherwise, formed a successful union. Suddenly, all opposition parties had a common enemy. Regional parties, Sikh groups, Muslim groups, and even the Hindu right, the RSS, and the communists came together. On the 18th of January, 1977, Indra called fresh elections for March and released several opposition leaders. However, many others remained in prison even after she left office despite the emergency officially ending on the 21st of March, 1977. The opposition Janta's movement campaign warned Indians that the election might be their last chance to choose between democracy and dictatorship. The general election of 1977 resulted in a landslide victory for the Janta party, securing 298 seats in the Lok Sabha and the Congress party only managing to get about 154. Indra herself was voted out of office, losing to Rajnirayan by a margin of over 55,000 votes. The Indian National Congress candidates failed to win a single seat in the constituencies of several northern states, including Bihar and Uttar Pradesh. The Janta Party's 298 seats were further augmented by an additional 47 seats won by political allies, thereby giving them a two-thirds supermajority. 
Rajaraja Desai became the first non-Congress Prime Minister of India in 1977. As a side note, though, in 1980, just three years later, Indira Gandhi and Congress returned to power, promising strong government. So that's Indian politics for you. But that was the emergency. So now that I've gone through the emergency at some depth, I want to focus on the other thing that has plagued India and given it such a headache, that being separatism. To understand separatism, you must understand that the essence of the modern Republic of India, in that it is a mix of nationalities, a mix of religions, a mix of languages, a mix of cultures, and a mix of histories. That India, as a republic, that creation of 1947 is a new concept. It's a new concept for civilizations that are 5,000 plus years old. Also, rather oddly, many separatist movements in the country exist with anything from just a few thousand members to many million members. Some movements want independence from India completely, while others want autonomy from the Indian state that they are in, i.e. the local state, the province, or simply want some kind of recognition or some autonomy or something like that under central government rule. So the whole thing cuts across so many asks and requests that it's actually kind of little difficult and complex. Now, while the causes of many of these insurgencies are varied, anything, as I said, from ideology, nationhood to God, and everything in between. In my view, the core crux is that they get support because of a lack of development and initiatives taken up by elected government. In other words, a combination of a failure of democracy, odd and end corruption, and poor economic progress. Now, there are quite a few insurgencies, but I'm going to start somewhere, and I will start with the Naxalite Maoist insurgency. This being a mix of Maoist groups, known as the Naxals, against the central government. And there were various types of communist groups. There were the MLs, i.e. the Marxist-Leninists, the PWGs, the People's War Group, that believed in Marxism-Leninism with a twist of lemon. And then there was a whole other group called the Maoist CPIM group, who believed in Maoism, that's the M in CPIM. They believe that the Indian state is being run by collaboration with imperialists, the Commodore bourgeoisie and feudal lords, and they all wish to overthrow this through extreme violence and to secure organizational goals. The Naxals had a lot of support among the tribals, i.e. the Adivasi community. Now, why do they even have support? Or why did they have even support? It was due to mismanagement of forests both under the British rule and under independent India. The lack of development in rural areas by the government is basically what filled the Naxals' coffers and ideas. Many of their supporters, Dalits and Adivasis, lived in these rural areas, and they were the people impacted most. Organizations also funded itself through the drug trade where it cultivated drugs in areas such as Orissa, Andhra Pradesh, Jharkhand, and Bihar. Drugs such as marijuana and opium 
were distributed throughout the country by middlemen who worked on behalf of the Naxalites. The drug trade was extremely profitable for the movement, as about 40% of Naxal funding came through the cultivation and distribution of just opium. Moving on to the next one, Kashmir, being a geopolitical hellhole for India. Now, I have discussed in my earlier episodes, i.e. episodes 11, 12, and 13, a little bit about India's borders and Kashmir, and I may dedicate a whole separate episode on Kashmir. So not here to talk in detail about Kashmir, but in short, it's a Muslim-majority state with minority Sikh, Hindu, and Buddhist populations. Maharaja Hindu guy joins India, causes shock in Pakistan, who then in turn fund an insurgency in the state within India. India sends thousands of troops to the Indian side of the region, i.e. The, the areas that it controls. Bits of it gets owned or taken by China. Yes, China took on some of Kashmir and some of it was given to China by Pakistan. Now, it also meant that Pakistan fueled the insurgency with Chinese money sometimes or American money inside the Indian side of Kashmir. And yes, India and Pakistan have fought at least three wars on Kashmir. If you think that this explanation is complicated, you are right. It is a very complicated situation, and I've summed it up very quickly. The next one, the next insurgency, is the Khalistan movement. And this movement aimed to create a homeland for Sikhs by establishing a sovereign state called Khalistan in the Punjab region. The territorial definition of the proposed Khalistan consisted of the state of Punjab in India, included parts of Haryana and Himachal Pradesh, which were previously part of Punjab, and, depending on who's funding the movement, also included Punjab on the Pakistan side of the border. In June 1984, the Indian government ordered a military operation, Operation Blue Star, to clear Harminder Sahib Amritsar of militant Sikhs led by Jamil Singh Bindrawale. Their military action in the temple complex was criticized by Sikhs all over the world who interpreted it as an assault on the religion itself. Five months after the operation, on the 31st of October 1984, Indira Gandhi was assassinated in an act of revenge by two of her Sikh bodyguards, Satwan Singh and Binat Singh. Public outcry over Gandhi's death led to the killing of more than 3,000 Sikhs in Delhi alone in the ensuing 1984 so-called anti-Sikh riots. By the 1990s, the insurgency had petered out and the movement failed to reach its objective due to multiple reasons, including a heavy police crackdown on separatists, factional infighting, and disillusionment from the Sikh population itself. There are modern Khalistani movements, and they are extreme to say the least, but is backed by Pakistan's Inter Services Intelligence Agency and Khalistani sympathizers in foreign countries, such as Canada, Italy, and the United Kingdom. Now, moving on to another part of the country and a whole other insurgency, Assam. Assam has been a refuge for militants for several years, and it's due to its porous borders with Bangladesh and Bhutan, but primarily Bangladesh, and also due to its very close proximity to Burma. It's in India's northeast. The main causes of the fiction 
include anti-foreigner agitation in the 1980s and simmering indigenous migrant tensions that exist as a result of that. The United Liberation Front of Assam, or ULFA, U-L-F-A, was formed in April 1979 to establish a sovereign state of Assam for the indigenous people of Assam through an armed struggle. The government of India banned ULFA in 1990 and has officially labelled it as a terrorist group. Military operations against it by the Indian Army began in 1990, continue to the present day. Remember, the Assamese secessionist groups have protested against the illegal migration from neighboring regions, especially Bangladesh. These are people who are Bengali-speaking Muslims. That's the primary agitation. To complicate matters, there is also the Muslim United Liberation Tigers of Assam that was established in 1996, advocating for a separate country for the Muslims of the region. Now, staying put in Assam, the United People's Democratic Solidarity, UPDS, demanded a sovereign nation for the Karbi people. It was formed in March 1999 with the merger of two militant outfits in Assam's Karbi district, the Karbi National Volunteers, KNV, and the Karbi People's Front, KPF. This insurgency ended in 2021. That's right, just a year before this episode got published. Okay, staying in Assam, Bodoland. The Bodo Liberation Tigers Force fought for autonomy of Bodoland under Prem Singh Brahma. It surrendered with the establishment of a Bodoland Territorial Council. Then, the National Democratic Front of Bodoland, the NDFB, was formed in 1986 as a Bodo security force and aims still to set up an independent nation of Bodoland. In January 2020, though, two Bodo separatist groups in Assam, the NDFB and the ABSD, the All Bodo Students' Union, signed a peace accord with the government in which they dissolved their organization in exchange for political and economic demands and legal protections for the Bodo language and culture. Only they had asked sooner, right? Moving on from Assam, but staying in India's northeast, Nagaland. In the 1950s, the Naga National Council led a violent, unsuccessful insurgency against the government of India, demanding a separate country for the Naga people, known as Naga. Secessionist violence decreased considerably after the formation of the Naga-majority Nagaland state in northeastern India. It currently still is there. And then, after the Shillong Accords of 1975, multiple militants actually gave up their weapons and laid down their arms. Again, still staying in the Northeast, now Mizoram. Mizoram's tensions were largely due to the simmering Assamese domination and the neglect of the Mizo people by the central government. Many Mizos complained for a long time of discrimination at the hands of the Assam government, who, by the way, were facing an insurgency of their own. The Mizos were ultimately demanding a separate state of their own within the Union of India. Uh, Mizoram is that state now. Or staying in the northeast still, Manipur. The Kingdom of Manipur became part of the Indian Union on the 15th of October 1949. Manipur's incorporation into the Indian Union 
soon led to the formation of a number of insurgent organizations seeking the creation of an independent state within the borders of Manipur. I am dismissing the merger with India as involuntary. Only after a protracted agitation was it declared that a separate state would exist within India on the 21st of Jan, 1972. Despite that statehood, the insurgency continued and on the 8th of September, 1980, Manipur was declared an area of disturbance when the Indian government imposed the Armed Forces Act of 1958 on the region. And the act, by the way, remains in force in, in 2022. Unlike other conflicts in the Northeast, not many surrenders have been reported from Manipur, indicating the tight control that the outfits have maintained over their groups. The groups are armed with extremely efficient intelligence networks and superior firepower. The militants have been able to carve out a number of liberated zones across the state. However, by the end of 2007, the security forces had managed to dislodge a bunch of those militants in those zones. So we've looked at two major concerns for the Indian government that have existed. Well, not really the government, since some of these are kind of as a result of the government, but the Indian people have had to endure. One, what we just talked about, are these separatist movements. And two, was the emergency. And both of these events have shaped modern India. Now, as I stated at the top of this episode, it's amazing that India continues to function as a political unit despite these fundamental issues. For some context, the American political entity went into civil war 90 years into its existence. The modern state of China was born out of a civil war. The cards for India were bad, but not that bad. And it somewhat thrives today, right? India is doing okay. India never had a civil war. In my view, succession crises and civil wars are the bane of existence outside basics like food, water, sanitization, and energy. And India never had to go through a succession crisis or a civil war. If you listen to the earlier episodes of this podcast, you'll know that the government very early on integrated by hook, by crook, or by force the princely states that were dotted in and around the newly independent country back in 1947. That created the modern state of India. And you can thank Sadar Patel for that. That built the idea of India. Jawaharlal Nehru undertook, for good or bad, a socialist agenda that enabled a restricted, protective command economy that worked well until, of course, it didn't work at all. The 1970s shock led to the financial crisis in 1991, leading to then Prime Minister Narasimha Rao and then Finance Minister Manmohan Singh to partially liberalize the economy, leading to a spectacular 20-year growth growth spell between 1991 and 2011. Economically, India held together. The massive population worked it out somehow. The military was and remains strong. It needs to be. It has Pakistan on one side and China on the other, plus a massive ocean around it. India survived terrorist attacks, such as the attack on parliament and the Mumbai hotel attacks. What such events do is create a collective national identity that fulfills the gap, the hole that hasn't existed for millennium, i.e. 
a unified history for all of these first world groups that otherwise wouldn't have. Now they have a combined history of both success and failure. India's multiple problems at home have also forced India to understand other countries' domestic problems and to run with a strictly non-aligned independent foreign policy that has served it well. Now, of course, that statement excludes the one big, huge intervention in Sri Lanka in the 1980s that went terribly wrong. You only have to visit India to see how new infrastructure is coming up. It amazes me no end to see how quickly these huge, amazing projects come about and there's amazing entrepreneurship going on. Oh, speaking of amazing, there is an amazing democracy and an election commission that takes care of that democracy, the physical act of voting. Think about how many millions out of 1.4 billion people cast a vote. Millions. And each year, some state or the other goes to the polls. And this is on top of the every five-year parliamentary elections at the national level. In all, I see, despite historical problems of separatism and the emergency, a bright future for India and its people. However, I do have some concerns. And these are concerns that I reckon needs to be addressed for India to grow more, reduce threats, and build faster. If left too long, these problems will just become huge and explode. Let's start. There are segments of minority groups, read Muslims, who are, it is alleged, not Indian enough. If you are Muslim, do you have to prove you're worth more? Many non-Muslim Indians feel Muslim Indians do have to do that. They feel strongly that Muslims support arch-rival Pakistan over India and Muslim rule has been a bad historical exercise. I feel that this development is a problematic wedge between Muslims and non-Muslims of India. It is a non-starter if your objective is to create a new national identity because you disenfranchise 20% of the population, many of whom are in the army, the police and other entities where they risk their life for the country. It certainly needs to be resolved and quickly. I feel that as long as the wedge is alive, it is exploitable by people in China or the West or anyone, frankly, with a grand design. I also feel that the safety of women in particular is an issue that needs to be given platform. I didn't mention Dalits, sometimes known as untouchables, but I feel here the state is actively working towards integration. Yes, there are still a lot of social abnormalities here, but it is not a wedge that will hurt the national interest in the long term, I hope. The biggest concern is the economy. Jobs, growth. In my view, the government needs to get out of the business of inept regulation and poor planning and let private enterprise thrive. This overmanagement of the economy and indeed massive intervention leads to just unnecessary unemployment. Education is another. I know a lot of progress has been made here, but for a country of 1.4 billion people, you need close to 250 high-ranking universities at world-class levels, 500 second-tier universities and 1,000 third-tier universities, and then way more besides those. And that's just higher education. There needs to be a focus on technical education because a lot, not everyone wants a degree. Primary and secondary level education also needs attention, with schooling focused on thinking for yourself and common sense rather than learning by memory. 
Healthcare is another. I feel the government has underinvested public sector facilities and also underinvested in emergency services, including an underinvestment in the police, not just health. Security enables people to do things. If India addresses these pain points, and there are more, but I just highlight a few of them here, then it is more likely able to compete faster with the rise of China and against the haphazard military interventions of the US. With that, I am going to wrap up, but I do want to say that I still think that the future for the people of India is great. And as long as the government is focused on development, creating jobs and building infrastructure, it will be even better. But some of these issues that I've highlighted, current issues, 2022 issues, not just the issues of the emergency or separatism, 2022 issues need to be fixed. The more they can be improved on, fixed, the higher the likelihood that India can play a bigger game on the world stage. Anyhow, thank you again for taking the time to listen to this episode. Thank you so very much. Thank you.